0: Hi there. Thank you for listening to the SCA podcast. What you're about to hear is one of three bonus episodes recorded at Bloom San Francisco, a unique event hosted by the Barista Guild of America. For the past few weeks, we've been bringing you great lectures from the 2017 Specialty Coffee Expo, and we hope you've been enjoying them. In the coming months, we'll be adding some geographical diversity to the feed by bringing you lectures from SCA and guild events from around the globe. So stay tuned. And once again, thank you so much for listening. One more thing before we get started with this episode. The SCA is now accepting lecture proposals for the 2018 Specialty Coffee Expo. So don't miss your chance to present at Expo and to potentially appear on the SCA podcast. Learn more at scanews.coffee forward slash lectures18. That's scanews.coffee forward slash lectures one eight okay let's get started
1: welcome to the barista guilds bloom podcast series brought to you by olam specialty coffee connecting roasters to the finest specialty green coffees the following is a talk presented live at bloom san francisco hosted by the barista guild
2: My name is Martha Stuman and I'm really excited to be here today uh, with all of, all of you in the coffee world. It's, um, it's a great kind of cross-contamination for me. So, uh, I am a California natural winemaker. I've been involved in making wine and growing grapes for the past 11 years. Winemaking is an interesting craft, being a winemaker for the past 11 years could be likened to uh, having opened a restaurant 11 days ago. So I think it's really important for the timeline of winemaking to be understood. You know, grapes only ripen once per year in the fall. So while a winemaker may produce a series of different wines each year, they really only have one chance per year to create their dishes. Furthermore, a dish might not be cooked or finished for many years. Wine is a complex matrix with uh, transitions and transformations happening slowly and simultaneously. So it might be hard for a winemaker to discern whether a current characteristic in a wine was actually the effect of what they did two years ago. And if you're like me, you might even forget what you did two years ago. (laughs) So, in the meantime, you've gone ahead and you've created two more dishes from that very same vineyard, although the fruit was different because that's how nature works. So the big question is, how does a winemaker get from point A to point B and have any clue what point B is going to look like? Well, there's two basic approaches to that question. Control over nature versus working with nature. Now, in industrialized conventional wine, the winemaker controls the entire path from point A to point B, and point B is the time at which that wine is put into bottle. The natural winemaker, on the other hand, will allow point B to be determined throughout the process, and we know that we ultimately might get close to point B, but Wine is a living product and, once bottled, exists in the world beyond us. So for a natural winemaker, point B becomes a point in time when a consumer opens that bottle and enjoys it. Um, So in reality, point B is many different points in time that exist long after we're gone. So natural wine often has the term movement attached to it. Uh, People ask me, are you part of the natural wine movement? And I rarely just answer yes. Uh, After that affirmation, I go ahead and explain why I think natural wine is important, how my wines fit in with the flavor spectrum of natural wines, also explaining that that natural wine flavor spectrum is much broader than most people think. Um, But I rarely get to the point that I want to lead with today when I'm explaining that, yes, I am a natural winemaker, and I am part of that natural wine movement which is that I am a part of that natural wine movement but so are all of you. If you've ever paid attention or made a decision to uh, buy grass-fed beef or fair trade coffee or cage-free eggs, craft beer, you get the point. If you've ever made a decision to purchase one of those qualitative products then you are already part of the natural wine movement. the natural wine movement is not an isolated campaign that's led by rogue winemakers, counterculture psalms, and stylish consumers, although it does sound very sexy that way, but it is rather part of a natural progression in a larger movement towards greater transparency and environmental responsibility and what we consume. So we are all part of the collective history and culture that has produced the natural wine movement. Organic farming began in the early 1900s as a counterpoint to or push back against the early beginnings of industrialized farming. And industrialized agriculture and processed food, f- food developed in tandem. So while industrialized ag often produced higher yields, it also produced crops that usually weren't as nutritious or flavorful, but processed foods could step in and Um, go ahead and fulfill you know fill in where those flavor deficiencies were so the point is viticulture is agriculture and viticulture has undergone the same industrialization that most agricultural systems have and so what happens to wine at that point knowing that wine is solely based on the flavors of the grape that comes into the winery Well, you guessed it, we got really, really good at correcting for deficiencies in our base product. So just as we are all part of the collective history and culture that produced the natural wine movement, we are also all part of the collective history and culture that produced uh, commercial processed wine, now dubbed conventional wine. And really, without conventional wine, us natural winemakers would have nothing to push back against. So the talk is from grape to glass, Let's start talking about grape farming. Grapes are perennial crops which mean that they uh, live beyond one year and if healthy will produce fruit year after year of their adult lives. Um, If a vine, if a grape vine is well tended it will live long beyond 100 years, so long beyond the time that the person planted it is is still alive which I think is pretty amazing so I've gotten to work with hundred twenty-year-old grapevines um, so I think you know who is that person that planted this vine 120 years ago um, which I think is really cool so industrialized grape farming uh, seeks control and that control ultimately takes a toll on the vineyard the average vine age for an industrialized uh, vineyard is 30 years so that's a big difference from that 120 I just talked about Um, some of the techniques used in industrialized um, viticulture are things like soil fumigation um, which is basically uh, where they um, where they pump uh, toxic vapor into the soil to sterilize it Um, also the wide use of herbicides um, in order to create what you see here as um, what they call the you know clean vineyard, where nothing else is growing besides the vines themselves. Um, additionally, the industrial farmer will select really shallow-rooted rootstocks, um, which are not drought tolerant, um, and this is as means to control uh, vine vigor and yields through an irrigation line and liquid um, synthetic fertilizers. So. The organic vineyard on the other hand and in particular uh, a dry farm grower will go ahead and choose more drought tolerant rootstocks which yield deeper um, roots that regulate themselves in terms of water and plant nutrients and um, these deeper rootstocks are really drought tolerant they can exist at depths of you know 20 feet, 6 meters or more, it's very common Um, and in the organic vineyard, uh, these roots not only regulate themselves, but because the soil is not sterilized, they take advantage of these really important symbiotic relationships with um, root colonizing bacteria and fungus, which also help bring up water and nutrients. Um, and generally speaking, uh, in the soil profile the deeper you go the more rich you get in mineral nutrients so vines that are allowed to grow deep and access that mineral nutrient actually will have better tasting grapes those mineral nutrients really greatly flavor, uh, great, greatly impact flavor components in the finished grape so while well, you can see here that there are plants growing in the vineyard other than other than grape vines in um, an organic vineyard uh, this is actually a beneficial thing. So, for the conventional vineyard, the argument is that there's too much competition um, with the vines themselves, which an industrial vineyard is trying to produce 8 to 12 tons per acre, generally speaking. And again, that shallow rooted rootstock is actually in the same zone as the grass roots. Um, but in an organic vineyard where the roots um, go much deeper than the plants themselves, um, and you're only trying to produce three to four tons per acre, it's really, the competition is not such a problem. And in fact, these plants that exist in the vineyard are really important um, for organic farming because uh, a lot of beneficial insects live in them, and these beneficial insects often outcompete grapevine pests. So industrialized viticulture, you have to treat grapevine pests with insecticides because you don't have any biological controls like you do in an organic vineyard. So let's talk a little bit briefly about the growing season because um, it's important to understand kind of the biggest pathogen on a yearly basis for grapevines is fungus. So fungal pathogens really love grapes. Um, It's necessary to do some sort of canopy management during the growing season then. Um, in order to increase airflow around the fruit. So, in the industrial vineyard, uh, generally mach- machine leafers come through and they'll go ahead and um, pull leaves off in kind of a vacuuming motion or hedge the vines, um, which leaves some of the clusters totally exposed to the sun, uh, creating sunburnt flavors, and then other clusters totally shaded, which means that they can produce green flavors or actually have mold in the flavor profile. So in the non-industrial vineyard obviously it's a lot of time and labor to go through and select specific leaves and shoots but the result is that you get a really nice dappled light on the fruit, you get even fruit ripening and you get more consistent airflow so you don't have to spray as many fungicides or you can use softer chemistry. Great farming, each farming system is unique, um, and I know some really excellent farmers that lightly irrigate, for example. Um, I don't want to speak in extremes, but the point is, generally speaking, when you're working with nature, rather than trying to control it, not only are you generally doing what's better for the environment, but you're actually producing better tasting fruit. So, let's talk a bit about the uh, transformation or the fermentation process, the winemaking process. Um, for a natural winemaker, it's basic that the grape comes into the winery ready to make wine, that's kind of the tenant of natural winemaking. So. A grape berry itself has absolutely, it's a little winemaking kit. It has everything it needs to make wine. It has acidity, it has sugar, it has water, it has nutrients for yeast inside the berry, it has color and tannin on, in the skin, and then on the skin on an intact, healthy grape berry that's not had any mildew, you'll have a rich natural bloom of yeast and bacteria. So. I can't emphasize enough how important those farming decisions are leading up to that grape coming into the winery for natural wine because you know, that determines that entire winemaking kit come fall. Now let's talk a little bit about fermentation. So for natural wine uh, what happens is once the grape berry is crushed and the juice comes into contact with the skin uh, that bloom of yeast and bacteria will start fermenting. Uh, those sugars and uh, these are non saccharomyces yeast and bacteria and what they'll do is they'll start um, creating a lot of flavors and a small amount of alcohol. So that's kind of what those those, grape, those microbes that come in on the grape skins are, they're more there for the rainbow flavors that they produce. Um, After they produce a small amount of alcohol and alcohol gets high enough, um, they die off and Saccharomyces species that are present in the cellar around us and in the air around us will continue um, and do the rest of fermentation. So natural wine, grapes, crushed, makes wine. Um, Conventional wine on the other hand is a little bit of a different story. So the grapes come into the winery and the grapes are crushed. And then immediately um, after that, the juice is um, dosed with 50 parts per million or more of sulfur dioxide, which kills those non Saccharomyces yeast species and bacteria. Um, at that point, the juice is sent to a lab and uh, the lab analyzes, you know, for things like sugar, tannin, acid, etc. Um, and then the juice is adjusted within specific parameters including yeast nutrient parameters so at that point things might be added to the juice like sugar or grape juice concentrate tartaric acid diammonium phosphate which is a yeast nutrient um, dead yeast matter yeast micronutrients etc after that the juice is inoculated with a single species of commercial Saccharomyces cerevisiae which usually has known aromatic components to it Um, once that yeast completes fermentation if uh, malolactic fermentation is desired the wine is inoculated a second time with a specific lactic acid bacteria Um, at this point too you know there might be things added like uh, mega purple for coloring or oak, um, oak staves or oak powder for flavoring so a little bit of a different story now At the the end of fermentation, is natural wine actually healthier for you than conventional wine? Not really. So this is more of a philosophical distinction. Is conventional wine a formulated product? Yes. Let's talk a little bit now about the aging and bottling, because that's where you might start having distinctions, and you might, you know, some health health issues may arise for certain people. So. In the aging of natural wine, it's usually wine with small amounts of sulfur added at certain points and sometimes none. Conventional wine on the other hand, there's a whole slew of, um, of things that are added during aging again just to create a more consistent product. Um, the majority of those things are fining agents, so they are processing aids and they're added to a wine and if administered pro- properly trace amounts, if any, are actually in the finished wine. So some of those things include uh, PVPP, which is a powder of plastic that's added to wines, um, lysozyme, which is actually an enzyme that lysis, um gram-positive bacteria, so preventing malolactic fermentation from happening. Um, and many people are allergic to lysozyme. Uh, chitinase, another enzyme that's an allergen for many people, Um, milk protein, animal-derived gelatin, egg whites, fish air bladders, um, clay to name a few. So those are all, besides uh, lysozyme and chitinase, those are all fining agents so they bind to certain things in wine and settle them out and then are either racked off of that or filtered. Um, There are other things that are added to conventional wine that um, once added break down over time. So one of those is Velcrin or dimethyl dicarbonate and velcrin is added just before bottling and uh, sterilizes the wine. It is something that um, wines that are dosed with velcrin are unsafe to drink uh, 24 hours after dosing and people who dose with velcrin have to wear full body protective gear as its its unbroken down form is uh, really corrosive on your skin and respiratory system. So, all of these things are done in the name of creating a consistent product, whereas natural winemaking is not as concerned with this, we don't use these techniques because we're just willing to showcase the diversity of nature. So regardless of whether or not, it's, it's hard to say how much of these processing aids and these things that are added to wine that break down over time are actually present in the finished wine. But I still argue for stricter labeling laws. I think it's really important. I think that things that are added to wine should be put on the label, and then if a winery decides that they want to test if there's any residual matter of those specific things, then they can also include that on the label. But I really think that the consumer should be allowed to decide if they want to drink a, pro- a product that's, you know, for instance, been, you know, processed with animal derived gelatin. That might be something you'd want to know. So ultimately, transparency empowers. Moving on from the fermentation and aging to the glass. So just as commercial wine has um, controlled the process from point A to point B, there also you know, conventional, conventional winemakers are also ultimately um, controlling the end flavor profile. Read. A wine should consist of fruit flavors, oak flavors, alcohol, but really that transition from grape to wine should not be apparent in the finished wine. Natural winemakers on the other hand argue uh, that if the imprint of fermentation is apparent in the finished wine that's okay and in fact that's actually a good thing. It can create more interesting flavors. It can create more delicious wines in the long run. So sugar is never just converted to alcohol by yeast. And alcohol is never solely the natural stopping point in the chemistry of wine aging. And as such, natural wines can range from clean and fruity to wild and funky. These wild and funky flavors have been getting a lot of press lately, both positive and negative in the natural wine world. But what I want to highlight is that natural wine really just expands the flavor spectrum. Uh, It adds to the flavor spectrum. It doesn't replace that flavor spectrum. So we also have fruit in our wines. We also occasionally even have oak in our wines, but usually that's been used to mask deficits in the base product. And I also want to add that natural wine generally does not just fit into the neat, you know, box of red, white, and rosé, and that's not a box wine pun. It's just (laughs) natural wine, I mean, we have just an amazing diversity of wine grapes available to us, and we also have a lot of different traditional winemaking techniques in the world. you know, ultimately, if you're letting nature kind of lead you on the way towards point B, you're never going to fit neatly into three categories. So, in conclusion, I would like to say that um, speaking from, from my culture, as Americans, we've, we've allowed, you know, we've decided recently that dry aged uh, grass-fed beef belongs alongside the softer flavors of grain-fed beef and that, you know, uh, spicy arugula and bitter mustards belong in the salad just as much as the iceberg lettuce wedge. So I really just, I think that these sort of flavor analogies can be drawn no matter what culture you're coming from. And I really think that, I just argue that wine should be given the same open-mindedness that you know, ultimately expands our world. So, thank you. There's a lot of info in that. Yeah. And I have to say, when I wrote this, it was, uh, I don't know, I think that was under like around 15 or so minutes, but when I wrote it, it was like 45 initially. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, I mean, I think there's so much, I, I'm not sure where all of you might find yourselves. There's a lot in my mind. So I I guess I'm curious, though, just as a way to kick off a little bit of Q&A and discussion. You know, clearly your mastery of the process of making wine A to Z, so to speak, is is there. But I'm curious if you could give us some shape to like, you know, your actual work, like what a day in the life of looks like and and maybe what your business looks like. Yeah,
2: yeah, definitely. I mean, when I so the of first 11 years mostly looked uh, like apprenticeships and uh, working alongside winemakers and working in vineyards and it was very you know very heavy on the winemaking and very heavy on the viticulture and um, you know coming back to California so I did a lot of apprenticeships abroad and coming back to California I um, you know I was looking for a job that would entail making natural wine but um, at that point in time there were actually very few natural winemakers in California and the few that did exist were so small that they couldn't really hire anybody so uh, that is kind of what launched me into creating my own business because I thought this is the way I want to make wine this is how I think wine should be made and grapes should be grown um, So. Yeah, 2014 through actually just last March, I was working as an assistant winemaker at maybe the one place that could actually hire someone that was big enough to hire somebody. Um, and I uh, broke away from that in uh, March to solely focus on my own stuff. So actually, most of my days now are spent behind a desk. I am in the vineyard quite often, um, but it's a big change. Um, so. You know it's a lot you're wearing a lot of different hats it's really exciting but definitely the business aspects um getting to uh you know getting to communicate with people like you and doing things that are um, more on the educational side which is really exciting Um, and then you know i lease i lease and manage the farming of two vineyards uh, which are a little further away Um, cost of land in california is pretty steep so the vineyards that I lease and farm are about two and a half hours up in Mendocino and two and a half hours in the foothills Um, so my day-to-day is very it's varied it's very varied so (laughs) but it's fun and I'm really looking forward harvest is we're prepping for it now but it's probably about a month away at this point and I'm really getting excited to get back in because I'm also the person who's in the vats, stomping the grapes, managing the fermentations, tasting, smelling, blending. So it's great.
1: That's awesome. I think uh, you were mentioning earlier how, in addition to leasing land and tending to a vineyard and making the subsequent, you know, the wine to come out of, you're also buying fruit Yeah. and producing wine. So, I mean, is there any distinction between, or is there any sort of uh, what would be an informally hybridized process where you're sort of like, yeah, well, this is uh, wine that is natural from this point forward, or is, mm-hmm. or is those those lines not crossed? Yeah,
2: so that no, I think that brings up a really interesting point, especially in California. So um, again, land's really expensive um, for the most part. Uh, most winemakers, and especially natural winemakers, who some tend to be on the younger side. There are a few. There are a few have been around for a while, but. Um, we all purchase fruit from farmers. It's actually very uncommon to lease vineyards. Um, I was excited to find those opportunities, but um, yeah. So really, you're putting your trust in the farmers. Um, I, you know, I go out, I talk with them a lot. I try to find farmers that are already, you know, aligned with my philosophy. Because uh, if there's one thing I've learned, is you know, someone who's been farming for 50 years a certain way is not likely to change even try as you might sat down alongside a lot of farmers and brought wine and really really trying to convince them but um, yeah it is hard so there there was and there still is um, something that's happening in California where wines are being made naturally but the farming is not quite there yet and people are working on it and I think as natural wine grows and we have more economic power, uh, then we can kind of, you know, create change through that.
1: Yeah, essentially influence. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, But, but I do personally, you know, I'm actually less concerned with the grape variety that I'm, I think you can make wine, great wine from most uh, varieties. So I'm really focused more in on the farming and people who have been. The farmers maybe who never went through that industrialized phase that really you know third fourth and gen- third and fourth generation who are kind of like oh yeah i am organic because well that's just farming you yeah. know which is which is great yeah so. no it's
1: interesting it highlights like a a, tr- a similar trust and almost a similar model that has existed in many different like coffee producing origins where mm-hmm. you know the the processing and milling and preparation of coffee uh, in this case, for export, in your case, you know, for the preparation yeah. of the wine, um, is done with a degree of, you know, uh, collaboration and yeah. uh, and some unknowns mm-hmm. and some, you know, asserted trusts, yeah. and, uh, but clearly like a bridge that needs uh, connecting um, and tending yeah. long-term.
2: How, how do you guys generally uh, deal with, like, kind of making sure that the farmer comes through with what they say they're going to do in terms of farming techniques. Is there any sort of...
1: I'm interviewing you. Oh, sorry.
2: That's true. No, well, I'll just, talk I'm, to you I'm guys kidding. about it later. <laughs> that was totally true. Yeah, joke, no, huh? I know, I know. <laughs> you just hung it out there. I had to swing. Um,
1: no, I think that that brings up again, it brings up attention that there there is not that mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, there is not, uh, there are different attempts and there are um, you know, some models maybe, or systems that have been Mm -hmm. proposed that are more viable than others. But I think it really comes down to, you know, involvement and activity and personal connection and transparency. Yeah, Yeah.
2: exactly. And, you know, when you are, uh, small enough and have the, um time and resources to create those personal relationships, then, you know, you call the farmer up and you talk to them, and you visit the vineyards a lot, and you say, hey, you know, what's going on over here? This doesn't look like quite like what we talked about, and they'll say, oh, you know what, I was really worried about spider mites this year, I decided not to cultivate, because X, Y, and Z, and you're like, okay, great, and there's a dialogue. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think that that'll be a challenge as natural wine grows, is kind of yeah, making sure that that relationship is still strong enough that there is there is that back and forth in that discussion so yeah.
1: um there's a question that's come through from akash um mm-hmm. which i think uh is a great question and speaks to you know a challenge that we're often talking about and thinking about um that it seems like you know you're starting to engage as a movement or as a you know in the culture yeah. of natural wine but Uh, The question is, are there any ways that uh, I can tell what is a natural wine on a bottle at my local wine shop?
2: And this, I think, is the biggest next challenge of natural wine. Um, I don't know if it would necessarily serve us to um, create a black and white definition of natural wine. Uh, There are some people who um, don't want to add any sulfur to their wines. There are some that add a minimal amount outside of that that's probably the only gray area really um, outside of that it just means that nothing's been added to the juice it's a grape and it's been natively ferment, you know, fermented with native yeast and bacteria um, but for the consumer you know there's no labeling that says hey this is a natural wine I mean honestly when I was first learning about natural wines trying to figure out what to buy I, <laughs> I would look at labels and be like hmm this one doesn't look very professional I bet this is a natural wine because <laughs> we have a tendency to like have a lot of cartoons and kind of hand drawings and you know it's an it's an in-house operation so one person is making the labels they're also making the wine um, but um, really I guess probably the best tools at this point until we come up with a good way to convey that to all of you is um, finding local wine shops that uh, specialize in natural wine and usually the people who work there are extremely knowledgeable and they love sharing it, Um, so there are a lot more wine shops popping up that only specialize in natural wine, so that's a sure bet, but then there's a lot of mixed uh, wine shops as well, so usually those people know the process and they know the producer, and then if you do drink wine from a producer you like um, go ahead and check out their website oftentimes we're small and it may be hard to find our bottles but if you drink something you like you can go online usually and order directly from the producer which is also greatly beneficial for us thank you Um, that that ultimately keeps us in business um, when you're buying directly from us and then also you know if you uh, drink a natural wine that's um, uh, a foreign wine that's been imported uh, check the back label see who that importer is because again just like shops specialize in natural wine there are importers that really you know they've already filtered out um, the conventional wines and they've chosen wines that um, uh, not only you know uh, fit the fit the fit the natural wine uh, profile, but that they also like have a specific palette. And if your palette aligns with that importer's palette, chances are you're going to like a lot of other wines from them. So those would be kind of the three main tools, I would say. Um, and then, of course, if you want to dive really deep, there's some blogs and stuff. You can email me and I can, I can give you a list of those. So. Very
1: cool. Is there, I mean, is there uh, a sort of widely held discussion within the natural wine movement Mm -hmm. uh, as to defining and messaging to the public. I mean,
2: that is, it is something that um, there is that push within the movement. And then I would also say on the other opposite side of things, there is a pushback from the press. That is one of the big criticism, criticisms um, from the press of natural wine is that there is no definition of it. Um, Again, I think. The definition I could I could sum up within a sentence or two, but it is something that we don't convey properly. So yes, that is a discussion point. Um, I think, and maybe this is true in coffee as well. It is difficult once you attach a definition to something. Um, you know, what's what are the next steps? Is there going to be an enforcing body? Um, if you're going to label it, you're going to need an enforcing body, um, which is, you know, a resource heavy thing. And we're still such a young movement that I think we're a few steps away from that. Um, but I think it's important. There are nat- natural wine fairs that actually give definitions of, so if you go to that wine fair, you know exactly what the wines are that are being presented at that wine fair in terms of sulfur level. Again, that's usually kind of the deciding factor. The go-to. So.
1: Very cool. I- I'm curious, um, do you, Do you have a figure, like comparably, obviously, Mm -hmm. besides the cost of land and besides, you know, a very specific scenario, but just in terms of like cost of production per unit volume, per bottle, yeah, conventional versus natural? I mean, is there
2: Mm, do you have a
1: sense of that? I mean, is
2: I don't entirely. I do know, um, you know, as a small producer, what goes into my bottle, um, so probably my least expensive fruit um, and the least expensive packaging I can find um, and smaller production I more or less at this point break even with a twenty dollar bottle on the shelf so I sell that to a distributor for nine dollars um, and that for me is more a brand builder so if I'm breaking even at nine dollars I'm there might be a slight margin in there but it's At this point, with my volume fairly negligible. Um, You know, the fact that commercial wine is on the shelf, already having gone through the whole distribution system, distribution, wholesale, retailer, and is $9, I mean, that's a lot less. So they're probably selling that wine, if it's $9 on the shelf, they're selling it for four, four and a half. I mean, that's almost just the cost of packaging. And of course, you get discounts when you buy volume of those things, but it's, yeah the the cost of great farming is a lot less but it's also you know costly to the environment and so
1: sure sure yeah yeah i was just curious um i'd love to open to the floor i mean are there questions that anyone has for martha we have a couple of folks running mics down here in the front thank you uh great job that's thank really you. interesting and interesting entertaining as well. Um, I'm curious to know um, how common is it in your average grocery store to find um, all of those additives and uh, things used in commercial wine? I mean, is it 99%? Um, and how, how common is it in the US versus mm-hmm. elsewhere?
2: Mm-hmm. Um. I can't give a specific percentage again because there is no labeling laws for those wines. Um, I natural wine is hard to do at scale, and so uh, at a larger grocery store, generally 100% of those wines have been produced, you know, conventionally. Uh, whether or not they have that entire list of ingredients that I that I listed um, may or may not be the case but they uh, will generally always you know have the kind of things added during fermentation and then some of the things um, added during um, during the stabilization phase so uh, most wines you'll have will usually have bentonite clay added to them in order to um, it's part of the heat stabilization process. So when wines are shipped, and if they heat up, they'll uh, throw hazes. Um, so you know, there's. I would very confidently say 100% of the wines you find in the large chain, chain grocery stores have had some sort of additives um, put in them that are not obviously on the label.
1: And is that leaning on the side of what all you listed in more or? at least one, I mean?
2: Yeah, uh, it really depends on the the wine itself. Um, And so a lot of those things I talked about in the aging process are kind of generally part of the process itself. And then others are to correct deficits. So, you know, maybe a wine fermentation went, went wrong and there's a lot of acetic acid. And so they're adding chitinase as a way to reduce that so there's there's both of those things happening but um, the list is actually a lot broader than that and if you um, let's see a good resource there was um, an article I think in 2013 in the New York Times by Eric Asimov who um, I think the title is if only grapes were the whole story Um, and another wine writer Alice Firing writes about this at length so again it's impossible to trace Um, unless you're going out and testing those wines. But even then, you don't always know if they've been added and just aren't showing up. So, yeah.
1: I think there was a question, Tony.
0: Um, Is there more inherent risk in producing natural wines? Is there like a, a sort of Failure rate that is higher, or do you like lose batches? or?
2: Yeah, yeah, that um, that is something that people touch on a lot, and I, uh, yes, it is inherently more risky. Um, it is not as risky, I think, as some people paint it to be, uh, but you will sometimes produce flavors that. I mean, I like again that expanded spectrum of flavors in natural wine, but sometimes it's beyond that like sometimes you get a lot of wine that where the acetic acid or vinegar takes off so much so that it's just absolutely unpleasant to drink and um, I would say to those people you know obviously take the time and study and try to learn the techniques of how to make natural wine and but also if you're going to start a business put that as part of your business plan you know for us to even in conventional wine, but for us to assume that 100% of our um, base product is going to turn into our finished product is just unrealistic. And I think there, you have to go, at, go to certain lengths in order to achieve that. Same with farming, you know, in conventional farming there's a certain percentage usually written into the contract of allowable mildew. Um, but you know, is that 2% actually a realistic number if we want to farm in a way that's equitable for the environment so yes that will mean that wines are more expensive um, and usually that cost will be, will be um, you know transferred to the consumer but in general natural winemakers try to keep their costs down um, try to get people drinking their wine on a daily basis and, and we do have to write those costs into the long-term plan of the vineyard or the long-term plan of the winery so. Great question. So first, I'll just start with one comment. What was the name of the chemical that you mentioned that the people have to wear the zoot suit to you Oh, uh, Velcrin is the trade name. Uh, Dimethyl dicarbonate is the chemical name. And that breaks down into methanol and one other thing. I can't remember um, at, at, at the time. So I've actually never worked in a winery that administers that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a product that's added to a lot of fruit juices and sports drinks as well Um, so it's definitely it's in a lot of the beverages we drink but it's interesting to me that um, I don't know if this is happening so much now but a lot of these like uh, really high end um, high pH ripe Napa wines were actually getting dosed with velcroin because sulfur is not very effective at a higher pH and they wanted to label it as unfined and unfiltered, so Velcrin was really one of the only ways to protect um, fermentation from hap- and spoilage from happening in the bottle with those pH levels. So. Yeah, I suppose that there's an analogous in that sense that Um, purchasing organic coffees is so therefore those that are working the land you know don't need to come in contact with pretty caustic chemicals and well yes and that's hugely important for me i mean i uh, i do add a very small amount of sulfur to my wines but i personally don't like you know using the raw i don't like using sulfur like it you know it's an irritant as well even though it's used in natural wines um so, yeah, and when I farm, I don't want to be around chemicals like that, and I don't want the people who I, who work with me to be around chemicals like that. Sure, interesting. And then what is your website so we know where to go? Oh, it's, it's, it's marthastuman.com, so just my name. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm.
1: It's so interesting. You know, that there's this very obvious tie uh, within our shared experience and specialty where, you know, as a small... Uh, retailer uh, relatively speaking, um, as a small roaster it 's just so vital to have a very clear and distilled point like creative point of view mm-hmm. um, to succeed you know yes. to be differentiated to uh, occupy a particular space for the consumers, <laughs> our guests to essentially elect coming to us right mm-hmm. is that the same for natural winemakers there yeah. 's almost like a very particular um, thesis that one proves and stands by and becomes known for?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, where a conventional wine can seek, seeks a consistent product, we need diversity. We need diversity in order for people to say, oh, you know, Martha's wines, they are acidic and bright and, uh, you know, tend to have this flavor profile. And I really like that. So I'm going to, you know, and then obviously the story that goes behind it and the you know, the work that that person is doing and like you said. A distilled point is very important. Yeah,
1: awesome. So. Uh, we have time for maybe one more question. Your hand is first.
0: Um, so, people don't have to label ingredients in wine because there are no governing bodies. But, why don't natural winemakers who know that they're putting in things that we want to see label their wines? Because mm-hmm. sometimes you don't even necessarily have variety on there. And yeah. the you know, people who are selling it will usually know. Mm -hmm. but I'm curious why people don't voluntarily do that because I think it would be helpful and it would also be an easy differentiation like when people have to, like for instance, regarding GMOs, people will voluntarily participate in non-GMO project and you'll see the absence of that will tell you everything you need to know.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's a great point and I ultimately think that's the way we're gonna get to where we wanna be because I think uh, insisting on labeling laws that, you know, natural wine doesn't have a lobbying effort at all and um, we don't have the resources for that but uh, we, can, we can label our wines and I think you will see more and more of that. There's a little bit of bureaucratic red tape in terms of the way that the trade and tax bureau is organized and the labeling laws are organized so I think ultimately that's probably why you don't see more of it but I again think you'll, you'll start to see. You'll start to see that. And you know, that article that I mentioned that was in the New York Times, uh, Eric Asimov points that out, and there's, you know, maybe a handful of producers who are currently lab- labeling their ingredients. So thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome.
1: Well Martha, I'm so sorry to cut us short, oh, but this has been great. awesome., yeah. and thank you so much. Yeah,
2: for thank, you so much. thank you so much. Thank you.)
1: You've been listening to a talk from the Barista Guild's Bloom podcast series. To hear more on topics relevant to the specialty coffee industry, visit www.sca.coffee forward slash podcasts and subscribe to this series. Thank you for listening.